Welcome to Public Historians at Work, a podcast series from the Center for Public History at the University of Houston. I'm Dr. Monica Perales, Associate Professor of History and Director of CPH. In this podcast series, we speak with academics, artists, activists, and community members about what it means to do history and humanities work for and with the public. In our second season, we're examining public history as it relates to medicine, health, and the well-being of our global community. For more resources on these topics and ways to support the mission of CPH, make sure to check us out at uh.edu slash class slash CPH or find us on Facebook and Twitter at UHCP History. Together, we can help reclaim our past. There are many ways to produce public history, but one of the most unique publications comes from the University of Houston. Houston History Magazine is a student-written and edited publication dedicated to the undertold stories of one of the largest and most diverse metropolitan regions of the United States. Join Dr. Debbie Harwell and Ph.D. candidate Caitlin Jones for their November 8, 2021 conversation about a recent issue focused on Houston's San Jose Clinic. For 100 years, this clinic has provided medical, dental, pharmacy, and specialty services to low-income and uninsured individuals. Dr. Harwell and Jones discuss how the magazine has captured San Jose's legacy and then expand their conversation to the process, challenges, and joys of working with undergraduates through this public-engaged medium. Let's listen in. Hey, Dr. Harwell, how are you today? I'm good, Caitlin. How about you? Doing good. I'm Debbie Harwell. I'm an instructional assistant professor of history in the history department in the Honors College at the University of Houston. I'm also the editor of Houston History Magazine, which is published by the Center for Public History. The magazine comes out twice a year in the spring and the fall. It coincides with our semester schedule, and it's a training ground for our history and public history students so that they can gain really valuable experience doing research and writing and things that will prepare them for careers later on down the road, whether it's as a historian or in any field they may choose. I am Caitlin Jones. I'm in my third year of the history PhD program here at the University of Houston. And before I came to Houston, I got my bachelor's degree in journalism at the University of North Texas. And I worked as a reporter at a local paper in Denton, Texas called the Denton Record Chronicle. I study U.S. history and women's history and public history. I was the assistant editor at Houston History Magazine, and I helped Debbie put together the print issue, I created web content, and I helped organize community panels. The current issue of the magazine is on the San Jose Clinic, which is celebrating its centennial in 2022. The San Jose Clinic is a clinic in the East End of Houston, correct? It started in the East End, and now it's located in what would really be more considered Midtown. But it's far more accessible now uh, near the rail line. Right. And it historically has served the Mexican-American and Mexican populations here in Houston. So it really is a community pillar for those people living over in the east end of Houston, which is a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. That's right. Are there other places like 
San Jose and Houston that people should know about, or is San Jose sort of a unique anomaly here? San Jose is unique in many respects. It's certainly believed to be the longest running charity clinic, or certainly one of the longest running charity clinics. But we also learned about some other places in the course of doing this research, people that they have partnered with that are doing important work. The one in the East End, if I'm not mistaken, the name of it was El Centro de Corazon, which the clinic had partnered with, starting first, I believe, with mental health care, which is very important. And now San Jose has their own LPC person to provide that sort of care. But we all learned a good bit about some of the other outlets there in Houston that can play a role in helping with helping people. How did the theme of producing a magazine about San Jose Clinic Centennial come about? It actually came about because one of our former public history graduate students connected us with the clinic. And she was working there and she thought this would be a, a great story. And so she approached the director of the Center for Public History. And of course, we were all on board. I think that probably the most important lesson I take from that is, is it showed why it's important for us to stay in touch with our students and with the people that we've worked with across the community, whether we did their magazine five years ago or their article last week. It just shows that all that networking that you do really can yield some great rewards. Why did you think it would be a good topic for the magazine specifically? Well, first of all, it's 100 years old. I mean, that's a big anniversary. There are not a lot of centennials that can take place, especially in the nonprofit sector like the clinic. But also because it fits right in with our mission to really tell those undertold stories of Houston. And I can tell you that there are a number of places in texts about the Latino community and the Mexican-American community here in Houston where the name Mexican Clinic shows up, speaking about the 1930s. But there's almost nothing that I know of in the historical record that connects that Mexican clinic, which actually formed in the 20s and was really helpful to the community in the 30s and going forward. There's nothing I've seen that connects the Mexican clinic to the San Jose clinic that we know today. And so I think that was another reason that really made it important to be able to tie those loose ends of history together. So I don't know, what did you think when you were working on it? What did you think made it important? Well, I think you're right in the fact that it's an undertold story. I had never heard of it until we took it up as a topic for the magazine. And so learning about the history of San Jose has been really interesting to me. But I also think that for better or worse, the timing of putting together this magazine during the COVID pandemic also really shined a light on the importance of healthcare, but also the inequities of healthcare that still persists today. And I think San Jose is a good way to 
look at how local communities have combated that. The timing of it allowed students to make connections that they might not have made otherwise. It's important for students to really connect the past to the present. And I think that the topic of San Jose, particularly at this point in time, allowed them to do that. The other side of this, you know, San Jose is a very local community center. It's a it's a community health clinic. And Houston is known for its massive medical system. It's been known as a medical mecca. So how does the history of San Jose compare to this narrative of Houston being this huge healthcare center? There's a really important component there about access. And we do have one of the greatest, if not the greatest, medical center in the world. And it is right here, smack dab in the middle of Houston. But that doesn't mean that everybody can go there for care. So places like the San Jose Clinic are critical to providing medical care and other types of care like dental and optometry and physical therapy to people who otherwise would not have access, and they go untreated. That's not good for them, and it's not good for us as a community, because that means we have more people who are sick, and that's not good from a humanitarian standpoint, and it's it's not good from a public health standpoint for our entire population. Houston, I believe, has pretty close to Uh, somewhere between 20 and 25% of its population uninsured. And so we're talking, what is that? For the metropolitan area, that's probably a couple million people Mm -hmm. that need access to care. Right. And I think a lot of students made that connection in the, the pieces that they were writing. That's the underlying tone of the magazine, not only celebrating San Jose, but highlighting why it's so necessary for places like this in Houston. Even though we have a large medical network, there are still gaps that need to be filled, and San Jose really does that. So what do you want people to get from this magazine when they read it? Part of what I want them to get from it really is directly related to what we were just discussing. And that is, first of all, we want people to know it's there. One of the things that came out in the interviews multiple times were people saying it was the best kept secret in Houston. And when you have something that you're offering people like medical care, you don't want it to be the best kept secret. You want people to know about it. So I think that's important. I want our readers to understand that this is a need that has been there historically And it continues to be a need that still exists today to provide affordable care. And here's a group that's helping. So the more people that know about it, perhaps they will refer people to come to the clinic for care. And also maybe it will generate more volunteers for the clinic or maybe more donations for the clinic. All of that would be terrific boost for them. I think it's also important in terms of preserving history, and I'm curious to know what role you think the magazine plays in preserving that history, or any history, really. I think that the magazine 
helps preserve history and preserve the stories of places like San Jose or the history of the LGBTQ community or the stories that came out of Harvey, I think that it preserves all of those by getting them out front to a broad public audience. So while we aren't archiving things, the magazine functions as an archive for people's voices. The stories function sort of as an archive. And because the magazine is published to a broad public audience because it's available in print or it's available online, it gets these stories out in front. Whereas sometimes if you archive something, it's wonderful that it's archived, but sometimes people don't know about it. And so I think that by preserving and spotlighting this history, that's really what the magazine does. And that's why the magazine is important is because we're broadcasting these histories. And like you said, we're trying to find these undertold histories that maybe people don't necessarily know about. And I think those are stories that are just as important to tell and to really shine a light on preservation in terms of amplifying stories is really what the magazine does. You've been with Houston History for for quite some time. Can you talk a little bit about how the process of creating the magazine has evolved over the years? Sure. We started out in 2003. We basically took over the academic journal that was produced by the Houston Public Library, and we put it in something that sort of looked like a magazine, but it really read more like an academic journal. At that time, it was mostly graduate students and community historians that contributed to the magazine. By about 2006 or seven is when we shifted to the full-color magazine with a more popular style that we see today. We still, even though we're looking at something that has a, a more popular appeal visually, we still insist on really rigorous research standards in order to have an article put in the magazine. In 2010, we added our website, which our students, for the most part, create all that content. The website has really been a great outreach for us for the magazine because all of our back issues are available there for anyone to read and download at no charge. And so it not only makes all the history accessible, but it makes the issues that have been sold out accessible as well. How do you decide on topics and what is that process like? We really choose topics based on these days student interests. In 2012, is when I started teaching the Houston History class, where I trained students to explore writing in other ways than the traditional research paper. They choose subjects that are of interest to them, which always really creates a better buy-in on the part of the student to stay involved. I also teach classes in oral history, as well as history magazine writing and editing so that students learn how to do oral history research, as well as how to then take those oral histories as well as traditional academic research and put it into an article. It's really through the Houston history class that we moved from these earlier 
submissions of articles that were sent in to us where we started really creating our own content. Students write the articles, and so we, we go from there in selecting themes for magazines. We also really like to focus on milestones. We really used that more in the past with the 100th anniversary of the port, or not necessarily an anniversary, but big events like Hurricane Harvey, where we decided this is important that we need a whole entire issue around this topic. And so that's what we did with this current issue on the San Jose Clinic. We started out with oral histories, then we went through the writing process, and then we had other students who volunteered with us at the magazine to do editing. You were a big part of that process, Caitlin, especially over the spring and the, in the summer, really helped them make this magazine come together, as well as the, the previous magazine that we had done. So I'm curious to know what you thought about our editing process compared to your background with journalism. Sure. So I think the most obvious difference to me is just the longer timeline that we have to produce a product because in journalism, at least at the newspaper that I was working at, we had to produce content daily. So it was a very quick turnaround for stories. You know, we didn't call them oral histories. We just called them interviews, but it's it's very much the same type of process. But I think the longer timeline helps you be more purposeful about the way that you approach a question or the angle that you take for a story or the photos that you use. And so it was really beneficial for me because I got to dig in deeper on a lot of different subjects. And I think working with students too was really interesting for me because when I worked at the newspaper. I was the person writing all of the content and then I would take it to my editors. And again, it was a quick turnaround to be in the paper the next day or in the next following days. So I think working with students as an editor, it was really interesting to me. And you had mentioned this earlier about helping students move away from their essay writing, because when students start in college, they're trained to write a certain way. And they're trained to write in an academic sort of way. And so helping them figure out and have that spark moment of, oh my goodness, this is for a public audience. I can be a little bit more creative and there's a little bit more flexibility about what you can do in the exploration of your writing is really important. Helping them find hooks. So fun introductory pieces to the articles was a really fun thing for me to do is to kind of help them explore that creativity. And then they would come back with so many more ideas and we would incorporate that. So it really was a back and forth. And I don't think you get that sort of back and forth when you work for a newspaper that has to produce content so quickly. I did also have a, a follow-up question for you because you also teach Houston history. You teach that class. And so students are learning about Houston history as they're writing these articles, um, not only you know with the research that they're doing specifically for the magazine, but also in just sort of a broad way. As Houston continues to grow and becomes a hugely diverse city in the United States, 
Has this changed the importance of the magazine in producing this past for a large audience? I think it's very definitely changed our approach, whereas early on, there were articles that represented many of the founders of the city and the business leaders and things like that over the years, and not necessarily just in recent years, but I would say over the last 10 plus years at least, we have gone more to trying to dig for those undertold stories that do represent Houston's diversity because we have a broad array of people uh, who come from a lot of different cultures, who speak many different languages. That diversity, Houstonians have really come to recognize is a strength. And it's one of our our greatest strengths. And so it's really important for us to tell the stories of all those different peoples and to understand what makes Houston so unique in terms of our acceptance of a variety of different types of people and and to also recognize that they're all contributing. Everyone's contributing. I think to especially in recent years, a lot of the topics are really student-driven. So it's based on what students are interested in. That happened with our LGBTQ magazine. Students were really interested in exploring that history that we might not have otherwise, but you could really see them take initiative and you could really see them, like you said earlier, have that buy-in to the magazine when they Um, explore topics that interest them and they're not, you know, necessarily told to go look at this thing. They find it themselves. Yeah, that's a good point. One of our other collaborative projects that appeared in that magazine on the LGBTQ community, and you wrote the first article for that, 100 Years of Stories, Documenting a Century at the University of Houston, Tell us a little bit about that experience, writing that article, and let people know what that project's about. Sure. So for the LGBTQ magazine, I wrote a story about Judge Phyllis Fry, who is a UH graduate, and she is the nation's first openly transgender judge. And she spent her life fighting for transgender political and legal rights. She's attended marches. She's um, helped to develop language that helps people get gender markers and things like that. So she's been really involved in that community. And she's kind of a, she's kind of a celebrity in that, in that regard. So it was really fun to talk with her and to hear her story. And then also hear about her relationship with her wife, Trish. And the article goes into a lot of that, but The article was actually the basis of the first video and audio segment for the 100 Years of Stories collaboration with Houston Public Media. And so what happened is we are looking to celebrate UH's history because the centennial is coming up in 2027, I believe. Yes. And so we got a grant from one of our donors, Carrie Schuert, to highlight these undertold stories about UH graduates or people affiliated with the university who have had an impact at the local, national, or international level. And Phyllis Fry certainly falls into that category because she got her law degree from UH. 
I worked with people over in Houston Public Media to help them figure out a script for a video that highlights Phyllis Fry and then also a script for radio spots that would play on the local NPR affiliate. And we recently collaborated on another episode that just came out in addition to the Phyllis Fry episode. The episode two was on the Afro-Americans for Black Liberation group that was on campus that helped start the African-American studies program here at UH. Another topic is going to be UH during World War II. Latinas in Houston was another one that I worked on. The new UH Medical School. We've got an interview coming up with Chancellor Renukator. And so those will be featured in that project as well. We have all of these pieces together, but how will they be used in the magazine? We have students who will be writing uh, stories based on additional interviews that we've done. And so those won't be Houston Public Media pieces, but they will be magazine articles. And so we have two issues of the magazine coming out in 2022 that will be about half dedicated to the 100 Years of Stories project. And then in 2023, we'll have a full issue that will be uh, stories from the 100 Years of Stories project. So we're really excited about it. It's so amazing that the impact that people from the university have had on the city of Houston. And a lot of folks don't, don't make that connection between the two. It's really overwhelming sort of to mm-hmm. see um, when you see how many people have either worked at the university or graduated from the university. So as a student, it's really interesting to see where I sort of fit into that web. I mean, not that I'm going to be a celebrity or anything, <laughs> but still it's it's interesting to to see who who all the cougs are. They don't all have to be celebrities. But they're celebrities <laughs> in their own way, I think. That's true. I agree. So In terms of actually putting together the magazine, the process of putting it all together, what are some of the biggest challenges you find in doing this type of work? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges in working with students in our timeframe is that maybe compared to journalism, it's a longer process. (laughs) But at the same time, we are training students to do this work at the same time we're asking them to do it and to not only to do it, but to produce something that is of a publishable quality. And that all has to happen over the course of a semester. And so that's a lot of learning process for them. So like, for example, when you were talking about being able to work with them and get them to do a hook and things like that, sometimes one of my biggest challenges is for them not to follow that formula that they learn, like in an English composition class, that's here's what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I just told you. And so to move away from that formula and use something that's, you know, more appealing to a a popular audience is a bit of a challenge. Probably the second biggest challenge is getting photographs. That always involves a lot of work and extra work even after the students have turned it in, because there are copyright issues. And also because, you know, that saying about a picture's worth a thousand words, 
you definitely want the right image to convey the messages that are in the articles. And then I think that our other challenge is that usually when we are ready to finalize something, it's in between semesters. So that's a time where we really don't have students working with us always. And so we're kind of dependent on them to come back and want to volunteer. But the challenges are so minimal in my mind compared to the rewards. I think the San Jose Clinic is maybe number 32 or 33 of magazines that I've worked on. And it never gets old for me. Probably my greatest reward is when I see a student hold that magazine in their hand and they are so proud of what they've accomplished and they want to share it with their family or their best friend or whoever, that just is rewarding beyond words. Yeah, I think that's the best part. At least that's always the best part for me uh, when it's finally published and you see it and you can hold it in your hands. But I do know what you mean about getting together those final edits and having to reach out to students and hope that they haven't completely forgotten about us over the summer. And so working on the academic schedule is a little bit challenging, especially because the publishing schedule doesn't quite line up. But Not quite, but we try. Right, right. In terms of creating this particular issue, it came, like we said, during COVID. And so how did that shift things in terms of the actual production of the magazine? Well, it was, it was challenging trying to do everything remotely, especially starting out with the oral histories that we conducted. I really wasn't sure how that was going to work when we weren't going to be able to meet with anyone face to face. The students never got to make a personal visit to the clinic. All of our clinic tours were done virtually. So it was really different in that respect. And from just the standpoint of the camaraderie, when everybody comes here to the office, we gather around a conference table and gathering around a meeting on Teams, uh, which is very similar to Zoom in case some, someone's not familiar with Teams was just not exactly the same. I missed the conference table aspect of all of it. And so when I came into the office, because I worked for the magazine for a year and had never been into the office. And so seeing the big conference table, I could imagine like how it was putting together the magazine with all of this room and like spreading out the pages and all that. And right. so, yeah. Yeah. And, and also too, when we would have our meetings, we would meet once a week. And for my class, we would meet twice a week. But in between, there was nothing. In the environment that we're in now, where we've returned to face-to-face, there's people in and out three or four days a week. You know, you can just pop over to somebody and ask a question, or they could do the same to me, and they can discuss amongst themselves. And so it's a really different environment trying to do it all virtually. But I have to say, the students really did their best to try and make that as collegial an experience as they possibly could over a screen, which is kind of hard to imagine. It also made it harder to train people. 
you know, when you're training somebody to do something new, I can have them come to my computer or I can go to theirs and we sit down together at one of the many workstations that we have here in the office and go over how to do something. But when you're trying to do it by sharing your screen, it's a whole different ball game. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that we have the technology to be able to produce this type of magazine. So I'm glad we're able to, you know, meet virtually on, on platforms and things like that. But definitely I would say being in the the same room is it's just a different environment. But I, I think that the magazine is still a really quality product. And I'm really proud that we were able to produce basically two magazines, essentially, during this time, uh, the LGBTQ magazine, and then also the San Jose magazine. So it's really a a tribute to the team that we were able to put all of this Mm -hmm. together and still create this quality product that still met our levels of professionalism. Mm -hmm. I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said team. It really does take a team effort and who's on the team might change from one school year to the next because students graduate and and move on and hopefully they come here to graduate school in public history. But it is always a team effort and that's what really makes it happen. I'm curious to know what you saw as the biggest challenge. For me, the biggest challenge was keeping track of all of the moving parts because in my previous work, all of the people that we needed to talk to usually were in-house. We had our own photographers. We had our own designers. You know, you could walk over to someone's desk and ask them a question. This, because there are so many entities involved, is really confusing at times, keeping up with all of those emails and what I was copied on and all of this stuff was confusing at times. But really, it's important because we're reaching out to all of these different archives. We're reaching out to all of these different interview subjects. We're reaching out to community historians and things like that. So keeping track of all that we have and all that we need that was a new experience for me is is helping you kind of keep track of that. But of course, You had done this so many times before, so you were just like a pro at all of this. And I was just kind of in awe of all that we had to, the the checklist that we had to go down to make sure we've got copyrights for this photo from this person to make sure we reach out to this archivist about this. And if we can use this to make sure that this interview subject is okay with us using this quote and all of this stuff. So it was really, really involved. And I don't, I don't know what I expected initially, but uh, the, the the moving parts was definitely the most challenging thing for me to sort of grapple with. And now it kind of seems like old hat now that I'm used to it. But in the beginning, I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so how did you feel like it helped you as a practicing public historian? I think the flip side of the coin of All of the moving parts definitely helped me forge community relations because I got to reach out and speak to different people working in the public history sector in Houston. And, you know, I got to talk with archivists. I got to talk with people who work with nonprofits. uh, I got to talk with people doing oral histories and things like that. So meeting with these people and 
talking to them and working with them and collaborating with them to create this product was really interesting for me, especially because I'm not from Houston. So really kind of being thrown in on the deep end uh, in this community was, was really important to me. And then also the magazine helps me find different ways of speaking to different audiences because like we've talked about, you know, in academic work, you're typically speaking to a journal audience or people within that sector who have a very high acute level of knowledge about the subject that you're talking about. And so with the magazine, you are kind of going back to storytelling. And that's my favorite part of history is the storytelling aspect of all of it. You don't really have to worry so much about theories and the methodologies. The magazine is for people who want to know the stories of Houston and its history and finding different ways to tell this history to that different type of audience is really exciting. And I think it's a skill that all public historians have to have to home in and cultivate as they go along. So coming from, again, kind of from your journalism background, but then also from the background of a historian and a public historian, what do you think about the ways that we share our work at the magazine? One thing that's really important is our subscriber base, because the the print magazine is the the main feature of, of what we do, and we work really hard on it. And so we have built up this subscriber base. People give gifts, gift subscriptions and things like that. So really growing that network is crucial. And then I think our website, our online presence is really important, making sure that stories are available for people. If you want to assign an article for classes, having that up online is, is really important and having the PDFs uh, because I've been in several classes where Houston History Magazine articles are assigned because they are really solid research that, that tells you the story of whatever your topic you're learning about. And two, I think the, the reach out on social media is really important. And we've got a wonderful social media team at CPH who make sure that people are driven to the website, that they can see our work, that they are interested in you know what we're doing and things like that. And so that level of engagement is crucial to building our audience. And then, of course, it's always exciting when we do finish a magazine and have it out and everything like that. And so to sort of promote that, we have launch panels where we'll bring in different people who are associated with the magazine. Sometimes it's community members who have been interviewed in the magazine. Sometimes it's archivists. Sometimes it's historians or experts in that field having a conversation between all of those people that digs into the history a little bit more and allows people to experience that in a more conversational way is really fun. And I had a lot of fun doing the LGBTQ virtual panel with all of those folks and learning so much from them that maybe we didn't get to in the magazine, but hearing them expound on their stories was was wonderful. And I've been to in-person launches before I worked for the magazine too. And those are always such fun because it, it sort of builds excitement about what we're talking about and the topics that we're covering. Yeah, I really enjoyed the launch events for all those reasons you just said. And the other thing I like about it is it gives our audience a chance to engage with those folks directly. 
even in the virtual ones, people can put questions in the Q&A. But when we did them in person prior to COVID, and even when we used to do more like a reception prior to doing the sorts of panel discussions that we've done for the last, I guess, three or four years, people could come up and talk to the authors or they could come up and talk to the people who were the subject of an article. They really enjoyed that. It was not quite celebrity status, but pretty darn close from a, a standpoint of local history. Some of the people that we've written written about certainly are stars in many ways. So it's, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to doing one for the San Jose Clinic. Yeah, I'm excited that that's coming up. So speaking of, how do people get involved with Houston history? How, how can they help or, or see what we do? First of all, I would recommend go to our website, www.houstonhistorymagazine.org. And you can click on Buy Magazines, and there you can subscribe. You can buy gift subscriptions, or you can purchase back issues, all of that from that one tab. Or if you want to make a bigger contribution, you can click on Donate. And there you can give to the Welcome Wilson Houston History Collaborative Endowment. Right now, it takes about five years for the endowment to generate enough earnings in order for us to design and print a single issue of the magazine or support a graduate student. So by building that endowment, we're able to generate those funds a lot more quickly than we would otherwise. And that is what is really important for us for the future in order to be able to sustain the magazine. So. Anybody who's interested and likes the work that we do, we hope that you will support us in one of those ways. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Dr. Harwell. It was good to catch up with you. Caitlin, it's good to catch up with you. I wish you were here in the office. (laughs) Maybe I'll see you next week. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay. Thanks. This has been fun. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Public Historians at Work. You can show your support for this podcast and the Center for Public History through a donation at giving.uh.edu slash public history. For more information about the diverse work of the Center for Public History, find us online at uh.edu slash class slash cph or on Facebook and Twitter at uhcphistory. Remember, we are all keepers of our history.